because we're upholding a standard. Where we begin to degrade that organization from a leadership perspective is when leaders set standards that are not achievable, that are not in tune with reality, or they compromise on those standards because that degrades trust. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Today's guest is Fran Rachopi. Fran served 13 years in the United States Army as a Green Beret deploying three times to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation New Dawn. Fran is a graduate of the U.S. Army Ranger School and also Airborne School. Fran volunteers with organizations dedicated to reducing the veteran suicide rate. He created his first company, FR6, where he does keynotes, leadership coaching, and training. He is also the creator and host of the Jedberg Podcast, where he has conversations with prominent visionaries, drivers of change, and those dedicated to winning. Today, we discuss wide-ranging topics like quiet quitting, meeting people where they are, properly setting standards for yourself and your organization. Thanks for joining us. Well, this is a first here in the Forge. Brandon, you are our first Green Beret. I've had several... Uh, special forces soldiers on or, or former special forces. And I think all of them have been Navy SEALs, you know, they get all the publicity, right? And so it, it's kind of cool that we're going to get to see maybe a little different view than than all those Navy folks that I've had on. So a much different view. What's that? Do you, uh, a much different view. Do you, yes. you, you know, yes. now that you've admitted that something was your first time, you know what that means, right? What does that mean? It means you owe a case of beer. I didn't so, know that, but all right. Well, you do. See, I wasn't about to tell you that either, but now, now you do. So you got to figure out what I'd like to get a Senate case of beer because that's what you owe. And so it is an honor to be the first Green Beret on, on the Forge. And I'll wear that badge of distinction. And to my Navy SEAL brothers, I'm sure they wrote a lot of good books and they're going to be in a lot of good movies. And they're probably sitting out there right now, sunning themselves and getting a good tan. <laughs> Always a lot of good competition. I, I love it. And you'll have to give me your address so I can send you that case of beer. You know, the funny thing is, <clears throat> this is going to date me a little bit, but I grew up, and, and maybe you can relate to this, Fran. I grew up listening to the haunting ballad of the Green Berets. Ah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was 1966 for all of my listeners out there. They're going, hey, I've never heard of that. Go, I would say go out and Google it. It's, it's, mm-hmm. Ballad of the Green Beret will, here, here, here's how you know, this is the test, okay? If some, this is the test, let me give a secret to right here. You, if somebody comes into a job interview and they tell you they were a Green Beret, walk out of the room, come back in and play the Ballad of the Green Beret on your phone. Watch their response. Okay, because there's going to be a certain response that they're going to have if, if they hear that song and they truly were a Green Beret. Guaranteed. I like it. Again, I think everybody should go out and listen to it at least once. You know, let's start with this, Brant. Get a little background here. What drew you to the Army and maybe more specifically to the Green Berets? 
Well, I didn't want to do either one of those things. So when I first when I first set out to get into my professional career, I wanted to actually wanted to be a journalist. And I went to Boston University to study journalism. Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, those those were the the heroes in that industry. They were the people who set the standard. They set the example. And every day I woke up and I was like, I'm going to be a network news anchor. And then 9-11 was my junior year. And even after 9-11, I there was this call to serve, but you know, initially my call to serve was like, I'm going to be a war correspondent and I'm going to cover these guys out there doing this thing. And then I watched as you know the the events and and the invasion into Afghanistan unfolded, and I watched later on. We went into Iraq, you know, about a year and a half later, and I saw these guys with beards and long hair, and they were riding horses. And to me, they were making an impact. And I knew that I wanted to go into journalism because journalism was about impact. Journalism gave you a platform, it gave you a, a place, a stage to be able to to tell impactful stories about what was going on in the world, and. When I looked at these guys in special forces, I said, well, screw journalism. That's where I need to go. I need to be there. I need to be growing my hair out, which I actually never did. And I need to, and I need to ride a horse, which I never did outside of training. But they're the ones who are changing the world. And that's what I wanted to do. Wow. Uh, that's surprising me that you guys train on horses. So that's that's part of the training, huh? Oh, ho- horses, snowmobiles, helicopters. Cars, trucks, you name it. Got to be ready. All of the above. You know, I I was going to save this question for later, but you really kind of just opened up this can of worms here. You mentioned impact several times. You know, one of the things that that I like to, I don't know, counsel students, you know, I teach at the University of Colorado and, and even clients is instead of looking at, you know, how great you are, say what, what kind of value can you bring? So, Tell me a little bit about what your views on on bringing value and impact. What does that mean to you and and why is that important? It doesn't matter what it means to me. It matters what it means to the people I'm working with. And that's where we get, that's where we go wrong. That's where we get fixated. You know, we get fixated on putting ourselves on a pedestal and saying, what do I have to say to this person? Or or what can I tell this person that's going to create impact in their life? And that, I think that's the wrong that's the wrong methodology. You know, what we really want to do is put ourselves in the, in their position. We want to put ourselves in their shoes and we want to, we talk about meeting people where they're at, you know, where, where, where is somebody today and what's, what's their behavior? What's their personality? What's driving that behavior and their, and, and what's driving the actions that they take. And if I can understand that, then I can know how to identify with them because the impact that we're trying to make is not about us creating, imposing our will on somebody else. It's about drawing out the best in them. And we draw out the best in others by meeting them where they're at and empowering them to be their best. Oh, I like that. So if I'm kind of summing that up, it's not a cookie cutter kind of thing, right? Because it's different for every client that you work with, what do they need? And I can hear that in what you're saying is you need to identify what it is that they need and then help them get there. Right. Is that, is that kind there's, of what I'm hearing? There's no secret sauce. You know, I think, I think a lot of times when we, there's a lot of noise, I'll call it noise around leadership and leadership development and leadership coaching. And there's a lot of people who write a lot of books and there's a lot of people who have, you know, I, I mean, I have, I like, I have a podcast on leadership, right? I mean, there's a lot of us who are up there and we're, we're talking and saying things, but there's no, I don't believe that there's just some, uh, there's no one book, there's no one 
process. There's no one checklist. There's no one podcast that you can listen to and you're going to all of a sudden become a great leader. You know, what we have to do as leadership coaches, as, as leaders, leaders in organizations, you know, when you're building teams, you're building individuals, you're, you're building organizations is understand what drives those organizations. So Laura Watkins, Dr. Laura Watkins was on my show not too long ago. And she, she talks that she wrote a book called the performance curve and the performance curve. She talks about the iceberg and, you know, in the iceberg you have, you know, you, you can only see the top of it. And so when you look at somebody and you think about them as an iceberg, what's above the waterline, it's, it's, it's their actions, it's their behavior. We see behavior in others, but it's what sits below that water line that matters. And below that water line is our character, our attributes, our habits, the things that compose us, our skills, our education, our technical capability, all of those things come together in some combination and they drive our behavior. Our job as leaders is to drop that water line. How can we expose, not in a bad way, but how do we get come to understand everything that sits below that waterline for those around us and those on our team? The more foundationally we can understand that, the better we can resonate and identify with those on our teams and the more effective we can make them. Mm. What's, you know, this kind of leads me into... All the news is is around this idea that, or this this term of quiet quitting, right? Quiet quitting for anybody that that's maybe been under a rock and hasn't heard this term. The way I understand it, and and correct me if if you understand it differently, is is essentially people are saying, "Hey, I'm just going to do what I need to do to satisfy the job requirements. I'm not going to go above and beyond. I'm not going to be overly engaged in my job. I'm just going to I'm essentially going to clock in, clock out." And, and be done with it. So I would say to you, Fran, all right, you're coming in as a consultant and I'm the CEO and I, I'm pissed off that people are doing this. You know, people that I'm paying are not going above and beyond and they're not engaged and, and, and probably not getting the most out of them. What is your advice to me as a CEO? How do I deal with quiet quitting? Yeah, that's a, this is a, whew, this is a tough one. So here, okay. Where to start the, like every complex challenge that exists in the, in the world, there are two ends of the conversation. There are two ends of the spectrum. The truth lies in the middle. I'll start there. Okay, so what do I mean by that, by the truth lies in the middle? What I mean is that quiet quitting is a combination of fault on the employee and fault on the employer. Okay. And what you have, to, what we've got to do as leaders now, now that there's been put a term, I mean, I'm sure this has been going on for, you know, decades, but now that there's a, a term to this, you know, we have to unlock in the organization what is exactly going on. Okay. So from a leader's perspective, we have to start to understand why are people not willing to go above and beyond? Why are they only going to do the bare minimum? Okay. So let's start very simply. What are we asking them to do? Are they operating in their job description? Have we created a job description that clearly defines what we're asking them to do and lays out expectations with set deliverables? Or have we entered a world where we hire people to do one thing and then they get in the door and a couple of weeks later and months later, we add a little more and we add a little more and we add a little more. And then all of a sudden we have somebody that we brought in to do one, to do a, a job description that has six bullet points, but that's a 12 a 12 bullet point job description now that requires not their 
initial, you know, 30, 40 hours, whatever it's going to be, but it's a 60 hour a week job. And we haven't adjusted compensation. We haven't adjusted their, we haven't adjusted their scope. We haven't given them the resources. We're just saying, like I talked about the noise and leadership. We're just saying, get comfortable being uncomfortable, work harder, you know, wake up, persevere, do more. You know, you want to succeed, right? Well, this is how you succeed. Yet we haven't rewarded it. We haven't acknowledged it. We haven't said to them, Hey, I know I brought you in here to do one thing, but you're crushing it. So I gave you more. And I compensated for you for it. And I gave you a higher title or I gave you more responsibility. I built a team. I resourced you. Did we do those things for those people? Okay, that's a, that's a very important question to ask ourselves as leaders. Are people in the roles that we have actually hired them to be in? And, how, and are we managing expectations? Number one. Number two, are we setting deliverables? Do we have deliverables and expectations that are set for these employees? because they've got to know what we want. People want clarity. People, not everybody is comfortable in ambiguity. Many people need clarity. They need expectations. Our job as leaders is to manage expectations and set expectations and then figure out how to hold people accountable to those deliverables. That's on the employer side. There's a number of other ways we could, you know, we could start to break down that problem, but at at the most basic level, those are probably the first couple of questions to start asking. The second one is, What's on the employee side? What's your why? Why are you here? Are you doing what you want to do? Is the question that everybody's asking right now over the last couple of years and why you've seen this, what they term the great resignation or you've seen this job. It's not necessarily a great resignation in, in terms of like people aren't going to work. Yes, there's a a certain portion of people who aren't going to work, but but people are changing jobs. That's what's happening because they're starting to realize, I don't have to do this thing anymore that I may or may not want to do. So are we asking ourselves as employees the right question of, am I happy with what I'm doing? If I'm not happy with what I'm doing, how am I going to solve that? Am I going to solve it? Am I going to do something about it? Am I going to go get another job? Do I think quiet quitting is the right answer? No, I don't. Okay, but I'm a person who says, if I wake up today and I no longer want to do this and I'm going to do the bare minimum, then I'm not going to do it because I don't wake up every day to do the bare minimum. Now, if there are, if you're a person who does do that, that's fine. That's on you. That's you. That's your personality. That's your drive. That's your vision. You got, you have to understand that that's what's going to drive you because there's other priorities that you have in life. I'm a one, I'm a, I'm a zero to 10 guy. There's nothing on the dial. There's nothing in the middle. I'm either all in and whether that's personally, professionally in, in whatever I in, engage myself to do, it's going to be zero to 10. I'm in or I'm out. There are many people, most people who live somewhere in between that spectrum and they're very comfortable, very happy with going to work achieving what is what is what is termed now you know the bare minimum or what their expectate what they believe their expectation is and then going home and doing other things with their life and i'm not advocating or saying that you should go to work and the only thing you should do is work in your whole life you have to have balance you have to have you have to take care of these other things you have to have a personal life you, you know you have to invest in your family and your friends and go to football games and baseball games and do all these other things but you got to ask yourself what's your why what's your why? Why am I here? Do I want to be here? And then create transparency with your boss. 
And I think if you can attack these two ends as an employer, as a leader, as a, of a company, of a department, if you can attack these two ends, and now I'll talk about getting comfortable being uncomfortable, have the conversation. Have the conversation. Bring it up. And that's where people are going to now have to ask themselves, did I create a company or an organization in which feedback is encouraged and expected? Because when we create a, a culture where feedback is encouraged and expected, well, now there's it's easy to have difficult conversations because everybody understands that we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about it. And that's okay. We have to do that. We owe that to each other as employer, as employers and leaders. We owe that to our teams. And as subordinates, we owe that to our to our leaders, that we are willing to sit down and have difficult conversations about performance, drive, why are we here? What are the expectations? Are we meeting them? If we don't, we have misalignment. Misalignment will degrade the organization operationally and culturally. Mm. What if I, there's so much about that I appreciate? I appreciate the fact that you're saying, "Hey, this is there's no, you know, in, in any relationship we have in life, and, and we see this show up a lot in romantic relationships, right? But you know, one person thinks they're they're the one that's that's right, and I always say it's always you know it's always a spectrum, it's a blend. Everybody's got some fault in this, so I, I think that I, I really appreciate you saying that. So let's say I'm a I'm one of these I'm a I'm an old school CEO friend and I say, you know what? This is my company. I'm paying them. If they don't like it, they can they can go find some employment somewhere else. What do you cr criticize that? I mean, if I go that route, what am I setting myself up for? I'm not going to criticize that. And I'll tell you why, because that's the culture that you want to build in your organization. And so what's your goal? Your goal is to go out there and find the people who ascribe to that culture. You know, what we, and that may work. You know, that may work in that environment. That may work in that culture. I talk about the nine characteristics of performance that special operations forces use to assess and develop talent, okay? Why is that important in leadership? It's important in leadership because we have to figure out what do we want out of our people? What is the character traits that we're looking for from our team? If you're the CEO that says that, who comes into work and says, I don't want this. I don't want any of this. I want people who come in here. They're hard charging. They're driven. They're type A personality. They're super dominant. They have low patience. Okay. They're, they're high on, on emotional intelligence. They're very sociable. They're data driven. If that's what you want, then you got to go find those people. And you got to create a recruiting mechanism that identifies that, that puts a premium on those character traits. And you have to go find those people. Otherwise, you as a CEO are going to come in every day. You're going to come into work and you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed every day because if you need someone who's high in dominance, who is who wants who moves quickly, and you haven't gone through an evaluation process in your hiring, and you hire somebody who's slightly introverted, who is very routine, doesn't manage chaos well, and is more collaborative than they are independent, well, you're just going to be upset all day long. And that hires on you. 
do do you think we run the risk? Let's say uh, that 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 answer actually surprised me, but but I like it. But do you think we we run the risk if I'm if I'm that CEO, right? And and you can, if anybody's paying attention, you can you can see I'm stealing headlines. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg basically said, "Hey, if you don't like it, you can go find another place to work." So we're we're seeing this in the headlines with some CEOs. Does that start to to sound like or be a one way, I mean, it's not a conversation anymore, right? You started this by saying, hey, both sides need to come together, be transparent and communicate. But when I hear a CEO saying, hey, take it or leave it, I don't feel like that's a CEO that's having a conversation that really has a lot of empathy for their team. Do you agree with that? Or do you think we can we can have that communication and that empathy, but just maybe selecting a different type of, of employee? Well, your culture has to match. So if you, so if that's your, if that's your mindset, okay, and that's your, that's what you want in the culture of your company, good or bad. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I'm not, you know, I'm not giving you the which one you should have because you have to figure that out for yourself. But how do you, how does it then manifest itself in the culture? If you have, if you have a company where you have a CEO who walks in the door and says, I want, you know, I don't want nonsense. I want super driven people who are independent. I'm putting that over, over collaboration. Okay. I want, you know, I want people who are going to move quickly, make decisions on little information. I'm going to put them in dynamic situations. And, and generally I'm going to assess if you can't keep up and, you know, you want to talk about everything at length with all these details, we're moving out without you. Okay. Understand that's the direction, but how are you now going to change the culture to do that? Because if your culture is one of inclusivity and, and I don't mean, you know, racial and sexual inclusivity, I mean, one in which you're collaborative in nature, everything gets, you know, talked about to the nth degree. We solicit feedback from every, you know, from seven departments before we decide what we're having for lunch. You know, we, we do all of these and our culture is one that doesn't match what the CEO has now put as the direction, well, now you're going to have that problem. You're going to have this misalignment where you're going to have an employee base who's disenfranchised, who's going to say, well, I work for, uh, I work for a, a dictator. You know, I work for, I work on a one-way street. But if you change the culture, which in an organization like Facebook is, you know, <laughs> takes, yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's very it's a long time to unwind, you know, a culture that has been built there. It's going to, that culture has to keep with the vision and the direction of, of the CEO. What are we like, what are we really looking for in leaders? We're looking for trust that I mean, we're looking to trust our leaders. We're looking to trust our team. Trust is built through my knowing of how you're going to respond of what you want in a lot of situations. If, and, 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 and generally, you know, whether I agree with it or not, I have to know that when I come to you with a problem or with, with something, how you're generally going to respond to that. If you waver and one day, you know, you're, you're super emotional and the next day, you know, you're like, oh, okay. How do I know how to bring things to your attention? How do I know what your expectation is? I don't. Therefore, I can't build trust. I can't trust you as my leader. I don't know what to do. I don't. And then I start second-guessing myself, questioning myself. The culture degrades. Operational effectiveness degrades. Mm. 
you know, what I'm hearing here, and I think this is probably common throughout the military. I think I picked it up again from the Navy SEALs that I've talked to of commander's intent. And so what I'm hearing is, and commander's intent for, you know, others that, that maybe not have heard that is I understand what my leader wants, right? And so I can make decisions. I can have some autonomy of, you know, if Fran's my leader, I, I go, I have a pretty good idea what Fran wants. And so I can go off and do that. Is that, is that kind of what you're, you're getting at there? Well, commander's intent matters because it's about mission execution. You know, everything that we're asking ourselves has to come back to, do I understand the overall vision of the organization? Do I understand why what I'm being asked to do plays into the direction, the end state? You know, we talk about end state a lot. We talk about results. Does this action achieve the result or move us closer to the result that my the military and commander, you know, in a, in a coming organization that my senior leaders have put forth out there. That's why, that's why commander's intent matters because it, it helps me with decision-making. It helps me understand that in my decision-making, I am, I am making decisions that are moving myself, my people, my organizations towards this end state. That's, that's why that becomes important. And, and I'm not saying that we should build organizations that are, you know, like authoritarian and, you know, with these, with, you know, a bunch of CEOs who are like my way or the highway, you know, get out, you know, that doesn't work. I mean, I mean, history's proven that normally it doesn't work or it works for a time. And, but, you know, we need, we need ideas, you know, we can have, we can have leaders who build organizations who, you know, have strict ideas or, you know, on their vision, but you got to solicit input. You know, you got to be able to be willing. You still got to be humble at the top. You know, you still got to be able to to take input and and get everybody to contribute to the organization. You know, dictatorships fail in business and in politics eventually. Yeah, I was going to say I'm glad you said that because I, my belief, especially, I think it's been accelerated during the pandemic, but especially knowledge workers, right? Knowledge workers are just not going to put up with that kind of command and control leadership anymore. That's that's my belief. And so when I'm talking to, you know, CEOs, I, I'm saying, let's start with empathy, right? Let's have some empathy. Hopefully that, that drives some compassion. And then hopefully we round that out with empowerment, right? I want to, I want to get my my troops ready to go and want them excited to be engaged instead of forcing it upon them. So when I hear these CEOs say, this is the way it's going to be, and I don't really care what you think, they don't really say that, but they're implying that. I, I just cringe and I go, I don't think you're going to have an engaged workforce when you start to act that way with your people. They're just going to do the bare minimum to not get in trouble, right? And what we want is that high-performing employer, high-performing you know corporation that I, they want to do good work and they want to go above and beyond. That's what I think the the environment is what we got to create. I think you probably agree with all of that. Well, what you're talking about is an identification of a standard. And, and that's, that's what, that's a foundational element for an organization. If you, if you think about a, a sports team, okay. And I work with athletes. If you think about bringing in you know, your athletes at the beginning of a season, are you clear on what the standard is? Do they understand the standard? Do they understand that I have to achieve a certain standard in order to even be considered to be on this on this team? 
let alone where I fit in once I'm on this team. There's a baseline standard. The whole same holds true in organizations. So as leaders, the most important thing that we can do is set that standard. We can still operate with empathy. We can still have compassion. We can still be we can still be a leader who cares about our people and wants to empower them and wants to contribute to their success and inspire them and motivate them and give them skills, hard and soft skills to grow. But why are we doing that? Because we're upholding a standard. Where we begin to degrade that organization from a leadership perspective is when leaders set standards that are not achievable, that are not in tune with reality, or they compromise on those standards because that degrades trust. If I'm building a, an organization, if I'm building a sports team and, you know, and my standard is, you know, you got to run, uh, you know, if I got a football team and, you know, my standards like, you know, you're going to run, you know, the 40 in a certain time that, you know, only a four, you know, a four second 40. And I got linemen who don't run a four second 40 and I'm kicking everybody off who doesn't run it. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, that you're never going to get there. But yet you see correlating examples of that all the time in business. You know, think about a salesperson. You know, how often do you interview salespeople and salespeople come in? And what's one of the first questions they ask? You know, are there defined metrics around this? Is there a target, a revenue target? Is there a sales target around there? Because why are they doing that? They're trying to judge you and your organization. And are you in tune with reality? Oh, I've got a oh, uh, salesperson. We're going to start this business. It's a new business line. You need to do a million dollars in sales in the first year. Oh, and by the way, our product sells for you know two thousand dollars pop. Who's going to take that job? You better be pretty high on the independent scale <laughs> if you think you're going to achieve something like that. You know, so so that it's what is the standard that you set. And then how do you execute against that? Enforcement of the standard doesn't mean you're a dictator. It doesn't mean you're an authoritarian government that you've been placed in there. But it, and it, but it does mean that you, know, you have a quantifiable place where you're going to benchmark everybody against and you're going to hold the line on them. And you can do that with, with compassion. You may have just answered my question. And so I'm assuming, you know, I, I like this, you know, we set a standard, and so I, you just you just hired me, friend, and I'm coming in. I assume it's going to start with a conversation. Say, hey, Ron, here's the standards I expect from you. Does how does it go beyond that? I mean, how do you cultivate where this? Uh, let's call it a culture, a culture of of a certain standard. Any any thoughts on how you do that well as a leader? You gotta what what's our job as a leader? You know, you got to figure out. So our job as a leader is different. In every organization that we that you're in, in every with your relationship with every department in your organization, your relationship with different people within those departments is going to be different. And so our job is to put ourselves at the point of maximum impact. And my position as a leader of the point in the point at maximum impact may be different in your department than another department or my relationship with you might be different than your peer, okay? Because I have to figure out what it is you need. If I'm hiring you to come in and build me a sales department, I'm hiring you because I'm not an expert in sales. 
I need somebody who is the expert in sales. So are you going to come in and I'm going to sit you down and say, here's your sales strategy. This is exactly what you're going to do. Here's, you know, execute against this. I might give you some general direction. Here's where I think we need to be. Here's where I would like our you know revenue generation to be. Here's what I think our target market is. Here's the demographics that I think we are. Here's our go-to-market strategy. What do you need? What do you think? How does that work for you? What can we do better? What do we, what do you, you know, come back to me in a couple of weeks and tell me what you think's working. Tell me what you think's not. If I got no clothes on, tell me I got no clothes on and we're all jacked up. Let's fix it. I hired you to tell me those things, but that comes down to having humility. If I hired you, if I just wanted you to come in and do exactly what I told you to do, I'd do it myself. Let me pause on that one. How do I know, especially for a young leader, maybe an inexperienced leader, how do I know when to stand firm and when to solicit an input? You know, if we think of this on a spectrum, on one side of the spectrum, everything, you know, I'm not firm on anything. And then so I just basically go wherever the wind blows me, right? We would probably agree that's not a good place to be as the leader. But on the other side, we're very rigid and we don't take any input and we just do our thing. Even if it's it's faulty or wrong, we still go down that path. So I think a good leader is somewhere in between, right? But how do we know as a leader when to, I don't know, when to stand firm and when to maybe go a different way? Any thoughts on that? Oh, I don't know. So this is a, I've gotten this, I've gotten this, what's the right way? I'll say uh, I've, I've gotten this violently right and I've gotten this terribly, terribly wrong in my, in my career because that, that's, a, that's a really hard, that's a really hard one. I think what it requires you to do is understand risk. If I've learned anything by getting it right and getting it wrong, it's an understanding of risk. I'll give you two examples. As a young detachment commander, special forces team leader, my very first interaction with our group commander, who was a very, no, you never one, he was a group commander. So he's the most powerful guy in the, in the unit by far. And he controlled all you know, special operators in Iraq. Never met the guy. Had just joined my team, joined my team in Iraq. And one of the, right in the, like maybe week two, he said, you're going to go out and you're going to conduct this mission. And I looked at it and I said, I can't, I'm going to put guys on the ground. It was a holiday. There was people in the streets. The place that he wanted us to go was in the center of it. There was no ability to fly in. It was ground-based. There was millions, a million people in the streets celebrating a holiday. And he wanted us to go directly into the center of it. And I said, I'm not going to do it. And I was, and I knew that my time, I might have the, the shortest career in the history of a special operator by, by standing up and doing that. But who owned the risk? I own the risk. I was going to take 12 guys and put their lives at risk for something that was not worth the lives of 12 guys and my own. And I had to call them up and received a, a pretty generous ass chewing, but refused <laughs> and, and was told later that I made the right call. Even by him, after he, you know, clearly, you know, explained what was actually going on on the ground and gave him some of the info that some others were unwilling to give to him, it changed his calculus. It changed the way he looked at it, which was credit to him to have the humility to listen. And he changed it, and he changed his opinion. Had I had I 
you know, just stood up, saluted, moved out, I probably wouldn't be here. Later on in my in my professional career after the army, I got it I got it massively wrong. I worked at a place where you know I believed that we had to institute a we had to institute a program. It had to be a certain way that the risk to to people and property was mine to bear because of my position. And you know, and and damn it, we were going to do absolutely everything I wanted to do because it was a zero risk environment, and I owned everything good, bad, and different. And, and the reality was I didn't, that that risk lived with the senior executives. And my job was to advise. My job was to provide my opinion. My job was to give, give my best recommendations and what they chose to do, we did. And what they would choose to do, we wouldn't do. And then when that risk came, if it manifested itself and, and became, you know, became a threat and, and, and something happened, well, Hey, look, I gave you my opinion. I told you what we needed to do. You chose not to for whatever your reasons were, whether it be, you know, resource constrained or you just didn't agree. That risk is now on you. And I failed to understand that. So it's about risk. Do, who owns the risk? You? Superior? You got to make that decision. Hmm. I think those are good guidelines. I, I agree with you. I don't think it's an easy answer. and I, I think it's different for every situation. So I, I personally, I'm going to use that as, as some guideline when I need to make those decisions. So that's good. Who owns the risk and let that frame your decision of, of how you proceed. And let's just say it, sometimes you're going to get it wrong, even doing yeah. all the things that we do. Uh, that's the, I don't know, that's the challenge of leadership. Sometimes we, we, we miss it. You know, I want to, I want to frame this back or kind of go back a little bit to, you were talking about ambiguity and, you know, on this podcast and much of the work I do is talking about, you know, living in the, in the VUCA world, if everybody is familiar with the acronym of VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, you know, I believe that this is, this is business nowadays. This isn't going away. And the people that are going to be able to perform well in a VUCA environment are going to excel. I, I firmly believe that. I'm passionate about that. Let me ask you this, Fran. You, you mentioned earlier that some people are really uncomfortable with ambiguity for, for good reason. Quite honestly, our brains don't like that. Same thing with uncertainty. But, but you also know from your training that we can get comfortable with that. What is your advice on getting comfortable with, with maybe a VUCA environment or uncertainty, ambiguity, any of those, of those terms? How can we develop that? Or can we develop that? I, I assume you're going to say yes to that. Well, the first thing is acceptance. Uh, we have to accept first and foremost that we live in we live in this world of uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Now, how do we how do we begin to attack those things? You know, what are the what what are the there's what are the things that become the the antidote to those? You know, how do we reduce how how do how do we reduce each one of those components? And that's what we really have to start thinking about. Our job as leaders is to take action. Leadership is an action verb. Leadership is not a passive verb. If we want leaders who are going to act in all moments of time, the good and the bad, it's easy in the good. Why do we, we, we but I'll tell you another thing though. We don't focus enough on the good. We, we, all, we always tend to have conversations about what do we do in the bad times? What do we do in the, you know, and, and what do we do when your back's up against the wall? Well, I always ask the question, how do you act when things are good? How do you act when 
you're making money, when the company's making money? How do you act when sales are up? When everybody's happy, you don't have a retention problem. Hiring's easy. You know, orders are through the roof. Supply chain's working. It's called your best self. What's your best self? Have you created your best self statement? where you actually sit down and say, I'm my best self when, whatever that may be. That's actually where it starts. Because how do I know when I'm in a VUCA environment if I don't know when I'm perfect, when I'm happy, when it's all working? That's where it starts. How do I get comfortable being uncomfortable if I can't define what comfortable is to then understand when I'm off of that zone, when I'm out of that zone. If you look at it as a spectrum, the middle of that spectrum is zero. Okay. A number line, negative 10, positive 10. The middle is zero. That's my best self. I'm my best self when I'm juggling five flaming chainsaws standing on a balance beam. That's my best self. I got five things going on. They're all highly, highly volatile. If they all work, it's going to be a great success. If one falls, it might take down everything. That's where I live. I, that excites me every single day. If I'm not doing that, what does it start to look like? If things are going too perfectly, what am I not thinking about? When I wake up and I walk in, I say, man, all these five projects are going amazingly. Well, I better start thinking about what I'm missing quick because something's about to fall. What about the other way? Everything, everything's failing. Everything's falling. It's all a mess. Why is it all a mess? Maybe I don't need five. Maybe I need four. Maybe I need three. I don't know. What's leading to it? What's cascading into the other things? I have to know what my baseline is to then understand when I'm uncomfortable, when things begin to go wrong and then start to unpack what's going wrong and why. So to answer your question, that's where I would start. Define mm. when you're at your best. Yeah. Good. Good. Gosh, I could keep going with this brand. This, this is fun, but we, we do need to wrap this up. I want to be cognizant of your time. Let's uh, let's start with this. How can people work with you? What's going on in your world? How can they reach out? Yeah. So a, cu- a couple different things. So number one, I, I'm the chief people officer of a company called Analytics Solutions. So I run all talent management and talent development strategy for, for them. It's about a 900 person company headquartered out of Boston. Secondly, I have my own, con- my own business that's called FR6. And that's, I do leadership coaching and, uh, and professional development coaching out of that company. Also, we do some security operations primarily in New York with the, with the state the government of New York. And, and then I have the Jedburg podcast. And so the Jedberg podcast is on all available podcast platforms, about 30 of them or on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can follow us at, at Jedberg podcast on all social media and at jedbergpodcast.com. But we're talking to visionaries, drivers of change, those dedicated to winning no matter the challenge. We're telling their stories through the components of a performance mindset developed through special operations. And we've had some really, really been very fortunate to have some great conversations with some amazing leaders. 
And as always, you guys get this. It'll be in the show notes, all of that stuff that, that Fran just mentioned. All right, let's go to our signature last question to, to wrap this all up. What, Fran, what would, this is a tough one, but what is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? My greatest failure was an inability to prioritize what matters in life. And it took me a very long time to understand that. I prioritized, like I told you, I'm a a zero to 10 guy. And often when you're zero to 10, you can't have more than one or two things that you really can focus on and focus on well, even though I, I tried to, to do many of them. And one of the things that I allowed to, to fail in my life was my relationship with my wife and my daughter for a very long time. And I focused on absolutely everything else. You name it, it was prioritized above that, above that. And, and that came very, very, it, it, it did separate us for a very long time. And you know, I wasn't a part of, of their life and it wasn't a part of my daughter's life for, for a long time. And then one day you wake up and you go, what am I doing? There's people here, here who care about me. There's people who have stuck by me regardless of my, my poor decisions. And what do I want in life? And who do I want to be? And what do I want to look at when I look at myself in the mirror? And what's really going to matter in the long run? And so I think I learned that lesson. It took a lot of heartache, took a lot of mistakes, took a lot of eye-opening experiences to force that into my into my head. And I think I've rightfully corrected that. And we made it the forty-five minutes. And my nobody's busted in here to tell me we got to go to the hospital to take my wife there to have our third. So pretty excited about. Well, how life has turned around, but it took some difficult times for that realization. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.